Hello there and welcome to TWM, the weekly roundup programme of the Scottish Football Monitor, asking the questions the mainstream media will not ask right here at sfm.scot. This time we'll be talking to Hearts fan and blogger Matt Leslie about his views on Standgate and on Hearts progress in general this season. We will also be looking at the apparent delay in the SFA's compliance officer investigation over Euro licensing and commenting on the managerial merry-go-round, especially at Ibrox and Hamden. First though, an apology. We tweeted earlier in the week that a former Celtic player had passed away. Regrettably, our information was in error and we were contacted by the family of the player who were understandably very distressed. Uh, we had got the info from another ex-player who had been contacted by a tabloid newspaper for a comment on the, in inverted commas, death of his former colleague. Even so, we should have checked before tweeting something so sensitive. We failed to do so and we apologise unreservedly to the player concerned and to his family and to everyone who read our tweet and took that information as correct. Well, the weekend SPFL action was interesting in that teams from second to fourth place in the Premiership all suffered defeats. Aberdeen, at home to a Louis Moult-inspired Motherwell, Rangers by the same score to Hamilton, who recorded their first league win at Ibrox for 91 years, and Hibs, who lost a last kick of the game goal to St Johnson after Anthony Stokes had seemingly secured them a point with his conversion of a controversial 90th-minute penalty award. Celtic extended their lead at the top by another three points, courtesy of Lee Griffith's impressive free-kick winner against Ross County at Dingwall. Not as David Tanner would tell you, Inverness. And meanwhile, Kilmarnock and Dundee played out a dull 0-0 draw at Rugby Park. And on Sunday, Hearts and Thistle shared two goals and the points at Tynecastle in a game that was only given the go-ahead five hours before the kick-off due to problems with the issue of a safety certificate for the very impressive-looking new stand, the construction of which has kept the Jambos away from home this season. That is up until Sunday. The upshot of the Premiership card is that Celtic have broke the way somewhat and the rest of the top six are now more compressed. A more competitive looking table if you take out Celtic, but there will be twists and turns, no doubt, which will add to the excitement for the rest of the season. Now I'm sure Hearts fans will have winced a bit this week as the opening of the new stand at Tynecastle eventually went ahead after a scare over a safety certificate which was only granted at the last minute. In fact, literally five hours before the kick-off in the drawn game with Partick Thistle. The project had already been delayed in part due to a blunder over procuring the actual seats. Uh, but some of the trouble with the social media age, I think now, is that people are super quick in their affectations of shock and horror over things like this. Those rushing uh, to mock or deride the hearts board for the, the comedy of errors surrounding the project would maybe be better served looking at the turnaround in the affairs of the club, from countless HMRC-led winding-up orders, administration, a narrow escape from extinction via liquidation, to the thriving fan-based foundation of Hearts and the well-managed club of today, who have jointly funded this multi-million pound project that has allowed the club to remain at Tynecastle and still expand their capacity. The pros far outweigh the cons in the new stand saga, I think. The problem is not in the making of mistakes, but in the ability to prevent their repetition. In fact, I would say that the tactical errors have limited damage potential if the overall strategy is still sound. And I think Hearts fans have good reason to believe 
that that is in fact the case. In fact, SFM poster John Clark put it better than I could. Uh, he posted to the blog uh, on Sunday, and this is what he said. I listened to Sports Sound before the match, and I have to say that Richard Gordon kind of disappointed me by appearing to focus on the safety certificate delay rather than in the really positive and celebratory aspects of a significant community and sporting occasion. An occasion made possible only by the sheer determination of honest people to save, by honest means, their historic club from death by liquidation, the prospect of which had been caused by a sleazeball owner. End of quote. The new stand, although sadly from a heart's perspective not christened with a Jambos win, looks really fantastic. It's a very imposing structure and dramatically improves the optics in Gorgie. I do hope that it won't take the edge off the famous tiny atmosphere though. It's long been my favourite and most fearsome away ground. Uh, so here's hoping that that atmosphere is still retained. Later, we'll ask a Hearts fan, Matt Leslie, for his reaction. Many of you will be aware that there are a group of fans of several clubs who have been cooperating and have secured funds to retain counsel with a view to seeking a judicial review of the authorities' handling of the events surrounding the administration and liquidation of Rangers. The situation has been ongoing since the summer and on the face of it nothing seems to be happening. My understanding though is that the fan group is still working with council to get their ducks in a row so as to leverage the best possible chance of a successful application to the courts. I also understand that the legal time window to make such an application will only be open for another three weeks. The group, however, are taking as much time as they can to prepare their case and nothing is likely to be heard until the day before the window closes. There's still no guarantee that anything will happen, but within the next three weeks, there will be news. Keep you posted. The last few years have seen hearts, on the whole, on an upward trajectory, although this week the focus has been on the almost farcical situation surrounding the opening of the new main stand at Tynecastle and the side's return to the stadium after the absence imposed by the reconstruction. Problems getting a safety certificate meant that the game against Partick Thistle last Sunday was in doubt right up to five hours before the kick-off. In the wake of the 1-1 draw, Thistle have asked the SPFL for a review of the processes surrounding the event. Matt Leslie uh, is a journalist, an award-winning blogger and a Hearts fan. I spoke to him about the problems that Hearts have had this week and the bigger Hearts picture and some other things. Matt, thanks a lot for joining us. I'm calling it Stangate because I'm not very creative. It has been embarrassing for Hearts, I suppose, but has it done any lasting damage? I don't think so, really. I mean, I mean, what would Partick Fissel and, and the rest of the Scottish media who were taking swipes all, all this past week have had, you know, Hearts put, put on the game and then something happened, you know, a bit of debris falling from the stand, forcing the game to be abandoned, and then there would have been a real crisis then. And, you know, Hearts would have been castigated, and rightly so. But um, Avan Bush says she was keeping both the SPFL and Partick updated day after day after day. So uh, Partick's statement really smacks off chucking uh, the, the dummy out of the pram, really. And also, when you bear in mind, for a number of years, Partick Thistle didn't open up their main stand due to cutting run, running costs. So you have the sight of any Partick game that was on, on the telly. You just saw this empty stand 
<laughs> from yeah. the camera angle, you couldn't see anyone who was in the Jackie Hellsman stand because that's where the cameras were at the time. But I think Thistle just made more more of it as it was. I think they were trying to get an excuse ready just in case you know Hearts you know breezed in on their return to Pinecastle and put up a dazzling display. Said it, which of course never happened. But they, they had the excuse ready that oh there was just a wave of emotion, blah blah blah, and it was unfair for this position. I think they were just trying to build up a wee excuse for themselves in case Hearts had turned on the style yesterday. But I think Thistle just spat the their, their dummies out really and. Yeah, I think as John Clark said in the SFM blog yesterday, that people seem to be missing the point and that the big picture here that is has been very much a success story for Hearts. Don't you think that the the Budge Foundation at Hearts Axis has been a real success story? And and wouldn't Hearts fans of five years ago not just bitten your arm off to be where they are today? Precisely. I mean, four, I mean, four years ago, he had Brian Jackson, the administrator, telling everyone there's only seven grand left in the bank, which is like you know a couple of players' weekly wage, and that was it. You know, the, mm. he said it was the toughest administration role he had taken. He was certainly was not exaggerating. I mean, Hearts could easily have gone to the wall, and now fast forward, they finally built a main stand. They've, you know, after getting relegated, got promoted. They consolidated the position in the Premier League. And it's back to normal in Hearts. I mean, Hearts are not playing well this season, but we've, Hearts are kind of used to having like two or three years transition and then a couple of good years. And then once, you know, some players get sold off because they've obviously attracted the interest of others, but a couple of years transition and so on. So, <laughs> and, and Birch has more or less restored Hearts to, you know, the same old, same old, you know, annoyingly inconsistent, but at least, mm-hmm. you know, we're, we're, we're now a profit-making company with a credit line from a bank. I'm like... Another big club, Danny, I could mention. Yeah, you mentioned uh, inconsistency there, but obviously form uh, on the field is impermanent and it can change with the wind sometimes. But will the return to Tynecastle help the team, you think, to be perhaps uh, improve their form or become more consistent? Well, hopefully, hopefully. I'm positive on the supporters as well. I mean, I mean I'm based on Ireland, so I don't get to the money games as I did when I lived in Aberdeen, but... From what I heard, Murrayfield was more or less panning out how what supporters feared it would be like had Chris Robinson's plan to move us there in 2005 gone ahead. It was a nice little novelty value, and then it starts to wear off, and you see this row after row of empty stand because we don't have the support or average to fill up a 68,000 seat stadium. Yeah, and uh, it just felt it was a bit lifeless, and also didn't feel ours. You know, the stadium wasn't ours; it's somebody else's. So it, it is good to get 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 back. Back to our, our natural home, and I hope and hopefully uh, there'll be some better results on the pitch for the heart supporters. You know, but if not, I mean I've seen hearts. You know, through the second thin myself, and the supporters do seem to seem to turn out regardless. So, so hopefully there'll be more, more better times on the pitch than uh, inconsistent displays like yesterday's. Mark, getting back to the new stand. It really is quite impressive, both as a spectator standpoint as in an entrance to the football club. It's improved the the entrance to the uh, to the stadium, the official entrance to the stadium, immeasurably. I think, but my one we worry is that it, is that upsetting the balance in terms of atmosphere because it would be it'd be horrible to lose that. I don't think it will. I mean, basically, what you've got is a replica of the Wheatfield stand, only with some hospitality and uh, some, some decent press facilities for for the state. But puff, I don't really see it happening. I said, I mean, Tynecastle still got its own enclosed 
feel feel about it. As as does Easton Road as well. For both Edinburgh grounds are very atmospheric when both supporters get get really really going. So you know if the team's doing well, I'm like, by God, you're still here, atmosphere. And uh, if not well, <laughs> it has been said how are the biggest moaners if we haven't scored after 20 minutes. So it's <laughs> both ways. <laughs> Well, time will tell about the, the effect that Newstand has in the atmosphere at Tynecastle, but uh, to turn to different matters for a moment, I've been talking to, or I will be talking to, old head of the Resolution 12 group later on about the, the, the time it's taking for the compliance officer to report back on the Euro licence issue, which was referred to him by the SFA a couple of months ago. Which, what's your take on the delay? Um... He's probably pouring over the fine tooth gun because there might be one or two areas that might be rightly or wrongly be interpreted as being grey areas. I mean, he's probably want to see where he can act, if he can act of anything. I think he's just you know, crossing the T's and dotting the I's to make sure whatever he presents is watertight and can't be challenged by you know either faction as such. Um, for, for those who are keen to see some form of justice being being done, the fact he didn't hasn't rejected outright must be must be some sort of encouragement that there is something there. It's just a question of, you know, is there something to build, a case to build on what he's found so far? But um, you'd want him to take his time, though, in, instead of just making a rushed thing. I mean, we all saw how rushed the Lord Lemo Smith thing was, and, well, that, <laughs> all that just left was a, <laughs> questions upon questions that needed to be asked, and a third of can of worms was blown open with the Supreme Court's verdict and that, so... So you, you'd, you'd hope he's taking his time because he just wants to make sure that he can present a strong, you know, decision that can't yeah. be challenged either way. That leaves no room for ambiguity whatsoever. You know, during the whole Rangers thing, I always keep asking myself, what would uh, the FA down south do about this? And mm. though they have their critics, I think they might be a bit more proactive, probably because, you know, maybe there's, you know, whereas in Scotland we have two, well, we had two major cash cows before Rangers, you know, imploded, Celtic being the other, but England, there's, you know, a whole host of clubs which, you know, could still rake in the money and one, I suppose, if they were up to dodgy dealings, wouldn't, wouldn't exactly be too great, great a loss because there'd be like five others who <laughs> yeah. still rake in the, the, the cash for them. I don't know, but I do get the impression that England's FA might be a bit more proactive. On, on, on what happened over the last few years, but that's just speculation on my part. But that's, I do suspect, you know, London would take a sterner line of one of their clubs was up to all that. I mean, they, they have done in the past. I remember Swindon years ago. You know, they won promotion, but you do financial regularities. The FA bumped them down two divisions before putting them back in the second tier after an, an appeal. So, you know, they do have a previous for taking action. You know, swiftly if it demands it. Matt, before I let you go, uh, now that the, the stadium issues are all but solved at, at Tynecastle, what, what's the next thing for Hearts? What's the next short to, to medium-term goal for the club? Uh, well, going by the cup draw that was made 10 minutes ago, beat heads. <laughs> <laughs> Three times in a row with a thought that, and, you know, we haven't won the last few times, so I think that's the main short-term one, I think, you know. It would, it would it would give them a tremendous you know the squad a tremendous fill up and the supporters as well and then you get that atmosphere that we were mentioning uh, earlier you know you know Tynecastle you know when the winning when Hearts are winning at Edinburgh Derby is quite quite something but by God yeah. it's a right den of misery with Hibs on the rare occasion I've seen Hibs get a result there yeah. but uh, obviously after winning that I think that's quite important for Craig Levine's own 
short-term future as well. If he wins that, he's bought himself enough time to go to see for at the end of the season, then carry out a rebuilding job in the summer, and hopefully next season will be the one where we start get going again. But if they lose that, <coughs> as we saw with the pressure that's mounted upon both Robbie Nielsen and Cathro, who's head of Derby, and well, <laughs> your number's pretty well marked. Speaking about Cathro, what's your verdict? Was he, the, was he the right guy at the wrong time, or, or was he just the wrong appointment altogether? Um, I'm not going to knock the club for going with a gamble. I mean, the guy was highly rated as a coach, and some yeah. big names were rated, and Rafa Benitez <laughs> rated him for, for a star. Yeah. And I remember you know, he was being tipped as you know one of the coaches of the future when he was briefly linked with the Rangers job before Warburton got it. Yeah. And, you know, when he was appointed, I thought, OK, OK, it's bold move, you know, hope it works out. And, well, obviously it didn't because, you know, obviously there's good coaches, but an elite seems to make the step, the next step up. I mean, a young coach shouldn't exactly be dismissed completely because Hoffenheim, you know, they appointed a guy in his 20s and he seems to have done rather well with them getting him into the Champions League. But uh, the Castro thing, OK, I'm not going to knock the club for experimenting. It was an experiment. It did work out move on but that's not to say if another up and coming coach does something he shouldn't be completely discarded because another guy didn't exactly fulfil his potential last time around. so I've got no doubt Ian Castle will be a coach somewhere again and I wouldn't be at all surprised if a few years down the line he makes a step up into management and makes a better success than he did at Hearts yeah, I think most of us would agree it would be nice to see Ian Cathro making a successful return to management someday, perhaps in Scotland, perhaps somewhere else, who knows. As Matt alluded to late on in that conversation that I had with him, Hearts have been drawn at home against Hibs in the third round of the Scottish Cup, so Tynecastle, or the new Tynecastle, didn't have to wait very long for a really, really big game. As I said at the top of this piece, Matt is a blogger and on his blog he has uh, some observations about the Stangate affair. You can find them at mattlesley74.weebly.com. I'll put the link on the website. As Fergus McCann once said, the most important man at a football club is the manager. Currently, both Scotland and Rangers are in the market for a new one. The situation, of course, is very fluid. Today, Tony Pulis was sacked as manager of West Brom, and high on the list of contenders for that job are Michael O'Neill, the Northern Ireland manager who is a target for Scotland, and Derek McInnes, the Aberdeen manager who is reportedly a target for Rangers. Personally, I'm not so sure that O'Neill would be a good fit for Scotland. He certainly did a job for Northern Ireland in the European Championships, but I'm not seeing the evidence from a huge sample size here. A proven track record constitutes a little more than one successful campaign. Gordon Strachan was, in paper, a more experienced than successful manager, and look where that took us. If there were some capable professionals at the SFA, they would probably be aiming in their own direction and not the one pointed out to them by the equally unqualified hacks in the Scottish mainstream media. That said, if Anil turns out not to be a contender at West Brom, Regan will probably just sign him up. I have no quarrel with Michael Anil, I just don't think a rush to appoint him when there is no rush will be a step in the right direction of getting Scotland to a major tournament. On McInnes, it does look less likely that he will be the new Rangers manager certainly from today's standpoint. Unlike the SFA though, Rangers appear to be taking their time over an appointment. 
Unlike the SFA, they really don't have the luxury of time to make that appointment. Is the prevarication caused by the lack of finances to buy out McInnes' contract with Aberdeen, or is it genuinely that they are casting the net a little wider? I'm not altogether convinced that McInnes is the popular choice amongst Rangers fans either. Yeah, the press have certainly been pointing Rangers in that direction, but I'm convinced that the fans would much prefer to have somebody like Frank de Boer. And before anybody says, look, they don't have the money for Frank de Boer, Frank de Boer is also a manager who is very much in need of rehabilitation at the moment. And the chance to turn around Rangers may well be something that would rehabilitate him in the eyes of world football. So don't rule it out completely. Maybe unlikely, uh, but uh, I certainly wouldn't rule it out completely. Again, time will tell, but the knock-on effect and its consequences for Scottish football will be greater or lesser depending on the identity of the individuals who fulfil both roles. And of course, there'll be a lot more to be said uh, depending on who does fulfil those roles. A few years ago, a group of Celtic fans proposed a resolution to the Celtic AGM. That resolution, known as Resolution 12, called for an investigation into the issue of a European licence to Rangers in 2011, despite what appeared to be inconsistencies surrounding the application. After several years of what happened to be banging their heads against a wall, the SFA recently referred the matter to the compliance officer with a view to ascertaining if any irregularities had occurred. By now, the issue for the Resolution 12 group is not whether the old Rangers did not comply with the regulations, it's whether or not people at the SFA ignored their own procedures in awarding the licence. The compliance officer was brought into play in late summer, only after evidence which was offered at Craig White's trial had suggested that Rangers may have lied in their application for that licence. Our very own Altheed is part of the Resolution 12 group, and I asked him earlier if he was concerned over the lack of activity since the compliance officer became involved. Yeah, in a way I'm not actually surprised because there is a lot to take up, take on board. Um, it's not just of the granting of the licence in March or April as it was in 2011. It was the events after it, after the sheriff officers called in August. It's pretty obvious something couldn't be right. You, you know, you, you, you can't not have an overdue payable and the sheriff officers calling. And it's been um, a long road to find out exactly what the situation was. And it runs through the resolution actually said we wanted it to be looked at, the process looked at, and for the whole of the licensing process for the whole of the year. So we were covering March, June, and September, which are the sort of checkpoints, the granting, then the, the monitoring checkpoints. Um, so there's a lot there. Um, so th that doesn't surprise me. Um, what I find, you know, I don't know if encouraging is the word, but what it could mean is that um, having looked at what's there, um, they're now delaying because they don't quite know what to do with what's there. Actually, I spoke to Matt Leslie earlier on and asked him about his take on the, the delay, and he suggested to me that, that all eyes are in the SFA over this and that they'll have to apply a great deal of rigour to the, uh, to the whole investigation to make sure that everything is absolutely above board and that everything is, is carried out with the absolute propriety. Actually, it's interesting that you're getting a comment from Mark Leslie because it's good to hear that supporters from other clubs are taking an interest because at the end of the day, you know, that, that's the whole point 
this is the best chance the SFA have ever got of actually saying, look, we've looked at this, here's the answers. And even if the answer is the licence was, was granted properly and monitored properly, at least we will have got an answer that puts it to bed. And in many ways, the point about Resolution 12, many points, but one of the points was accountability. And that's what accountability says, is, look, we think there's a problem, we would like answers. And we've spent four years trying to get them. And if we actually get an answer, that in itself, you know, I would consider as a step forward in the road to sending the message that you are accountable. I think one of the problems with this uh, so far has been that the SFA have seen fit not to give you guys any standing in the matter and they've pretty much ignored you uh, and your concerns so far, haven't they? Basically, you know, that was their, that was a position that was, you know, you know, you don't have any right to come to us. Um, we to supply them with the names of people who actually signed the resolution. We to go through that hoop. Um, and eventually, the, the, it was only the pressure that came out when, um, in, what was it, 2016, um, that eventually they, they, they bowed to, because there was pressure in Celtic as well. When the Tax Justice Network put out their report, an awful lot of what went on was put into the public domain. So a lot more people knew there was questions to be answered. And so, you, you know, the, the, the SFA, as far as I'm concerned, they were just you know, prevaricating. They weren't addressing the issues that we put to them. I think that was in the statement from memory that Celtic made, is that quick questions were asked, and, they, you know, they weren't specifically addressed. It was all, um, everything was proper, but it's been looked at. You trust us, basically. And the answer is we didn't, because we had information that suggested that, you know, things weren't what they were telling us. You think one of the lessons that should be learned from all this, from an SFA perspective, from a Celtic perspective, or any other club's perspective for that matter, is that this uh, apparent uh, search for transparency in football is best served by actually listening to fan groups like yourselves? Absolutely, because, you know, the, the, the SFA themselves talk in the Vision 2020 of being open, honest and, you know, transparent. And, and, and in this issue, they've been anything but transparent. And when it's been clear that there are things to be transparent about, they've come back and say they don't want to rake over the coals, you know. And that's just a recipe for, a, a, you know, for an, any organisation to do what they like, knowing that, you know, if they don't follow the rules, nobody is going to know that they haven't followed the rules. Yeah. And there is no mechanism to make them, you know, to, to divulge what they did. The mechanism just, it just simply doesn't exist. And those mechanisms need to be introduced. An ombudsman, somebody or other, the fans can go to who they can trust to actually get answers, answers that satisfy whether they support the beliefs of the fans or, you know, if you like, turn what they understood in its head. Um, mm. Nevertheless, there has to be that avenue. That's that's one of the lessons that has to be learned for this. Yeah, I suppose I could be accused of being a bit of a conspiracy theorist here, but given the SFA's reluctance to indulge in any kind of wider review of that whole situation surrounding Rangers liquidation. Is it possible that this compliance officer investigation might be somewhere where they feel they might uh, allow some concession in, in order to offset the intransigence that they've shown over the wider review? Yeah, I mean, I, I think there's the, the, there might be a reluctance to actually state what did take place. Um, because... The narrative suggests that, you know, deceit was was a factor in the granting of the licence. I'll, I'll put it like that. Mm -hmm. And if there wasn't, fine, they could say that. If there was, 
I think they, they'll find great difficulty in saying that because there just seems to be a general reluctance to actually admit that, you know, the wrong took place. I mean, Nimmo Smith, although he wasn't asked, comes out and says, well, there is no question of dishonesty when he was looking at the failure to register. The fact of the matter was, this HMRC had already accused Rangers of being dishonest, yeah. you know, in the documentation that he never saw. So, there's, there's, as I said before, there's a lot going on here. So when do you I, can, think, I think, think that's why it's, it's taken so long. Ulti, you seem to be quite relaxed just now about the time that it's taken for the compliance officer to come back, but but how long will you be relaxed the longer the, the silence? Well, I think what would happen is, is that given that Abel Celtic aren't immediately involved in this, which is the reason why they've left the process with the SFA, and that's, you know, and, and that's it, because they can't get involved in it, they'll be seen to be interfering. Mm-hmm. Um, Nevertheless, the locus for it was the possibility that Celtic should have got the like should have got the, the application of the license rather instead of Rangers, and that that would have put some money in the coffers, yeah. and that would have affected the share the share value, you know. So whilst that's um, you know that's still at play, I think that eventually pressure will start to be put on Celtic themselves from shareholders mm-hmm. who say, how long is this going to take? And here's the point as well: other clubs supporters are interested and the, the, the underlying question is is the longer this takes the less trust we have in the SFA to run our game and as you get near season ticket renewal next year which is only five six months away the question that clubs and the directors of other clubs have to say is can we genuinely ask our supporters to buy tickets for a game where you know how can we you know how can we convince them that they've been asked to play a game that will be fairly governed well, well, I think so in that sense, the time frame will take us into another ST spring, if you like. And I think it'd be, you know, if, if it takes that long, I think that'd be a, a, a mistake because this thing just isn't going to go away. Exactly, of course, the sort of pressure that was put on the clubs way back in 2012. Well, Ollie, thanks very much for coming on and speaking to us tonight. We'll continue to keep an eye on the story and hope for some positive results. I hope so. I hope so, yeah. Okay, that's it for this week. We apologise for the poor quality of the recorded interviews, the telephone interviews, and uh, uh, of course, as we said last week, we are looking for some sponsorship. If any commercial enterprises interested in being in sponsoring uh, the weekly monitor uh, to help us to get the equipment that we need, uh, we'd be very, very interested to hear from you, sfm at sfm.scot, and we can give you any details. Thanks very much again to Matt Leslie tonight. Thanks very much to Aldheed. And thanks very much to you for taking part in TWM. I've been John Cole. We'll see you next time.